Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have what I expect to be an incredibly entertaining and fun episode for you. Our guest helped build one of the world's first multi-billion dollar short-selling hedge funds at Festback Partners in the 1980s where he got to expose dozens of stock frauds. And then he became an early stage investor going along on lots of stocks and private companies and health food and satellite TVs. Now he runs White Rock Capital Family Office, where he's spending a lot of time thinking about biotech. We're thrilled to have him on the show. Welcome, Tom Barton. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So, Tom, I figured we'd use your career arc as jumping off points to talk about a few different topics that are near and dear to your heart, including short selling and private investing and everything else. But maybe bring us back to the beginning. I think you were a Vandy guy. I'm actually going to be in Nashville next week. So podcast listeners, come on out to uh, Top Golf. We're giving a talk there. But walk us through it. You did your MBA, I believe. Were you a short seller out of the womb? How'd you get into this world? After I graduated from Vanderbilt in the late 70s, the first job I took was in New York City for W.R. Grace. Back then, Grace was actually a really great diversified conglomerate. And I worked directly for a staff that was right under Peter Grace, who was the CEO chairman. He was basically pretty much a dictator of W.R. Grace. And I did all the confidential work. So if they were going to acquire anything, divest anything, make any major changes within the uh, company, they would come to our staff. So no, I didn't get to make any great strategic decisions, but I had to do all the work and I had to do all the financial work and the marketing strategic kind of analysis for literally hundreds of companies. Because if you looked at Grace back in those days, first of all, they were a an industrial company and they were in things like Cryovac, which is the plastic wrap that goes over all the stakes. And they own 90% of so many other markets and they had dominant shares in industrial, natural gas kind of industries. And at that time, you weren't getting a very big multiple. So they started diversifying. They started buying all these consumer product companies and restaurant chains and sporting goods stores. Most of these don't exist anymore or they were sold off. And so I had to do all the analysis. So pretty much I worked 19 hours a day for about three years and kind of learned every industry. That was like an excellent place to start. It was an excellent place. But during the process, it became very funny because I was reasonably close to Peter Grace, and he said to me one day, he said, hey, Barton, he says, you're the only guy who works for me that'll come back and tell me how crappy everything is. And I go, well, I don't know. I go out there and I look at this stuff. And look, I'm pretty young back then. I'm like 25. And I go, it's pretty obvious. This is like really in a lot of trouble. He says, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you to 20 cities over the next 20 years, and you can clean up all our garbage stuff. Every time we have a problem, I'm going to send you to the next place. And I went home that night, and I went, that does not sound like a good job at all. 
So that was pretty much the end of my WR Grace days. I just could not. I couldn't imagine going to 20 cities. You can imagine the cities they would have sent me to also. So I left. I went to Dallas, started a firm with another guy. It was a manufacturing firm. It turned out we ended up building most of the fixtures for Blockbuster Video. If you remember, they're kind of crazy fixtures they had in there. We just kind of morphed into a very unusual kind of manufacturing business, specialized on that somewhere in the process. A European company came in and bought me out, and I got my first pretty much tall capital. It was a decent amount of money back then, but it's not huge, but it was certainly enough to let me be independent if I wanted. And after that, which is, we're talking a period of this whole thing from Grace, let's say 1977 to 80, then 80 to 83. In 83, I was done with that segment of my life. So now I knew how to run companies. I knew how to analyze companies. I understood balance sheets, P&L cash flow, but I also understood what it was like to actually be in a plant and have to count inventory and actually collect receivables. So I got this really great combination of understanding all these industries, then actually having to work in one where I actually had to build a company, make payroll and all those kind of things. So it was a really good combination. And then my whole life changed and I started to become a short seller in 1983. By the way, do you know that there's still a Blockbuster video in Alaska? I think there's only one left. I can't remember why there's one in Anchorage, but it's probably like a museum at this point. You know, a really good friend of mine back then who I met because of the quality of data we came up with was Alan Abelson, who was the editor at Barron. So I still think he's the single best writer and the most accurate guy that I've ever dealt with in the press. And he was talking about the collapse of Blockbuster Video about 10 years before it finally collapsed. And, you know, when Netflix first came out, they were going to put them away. It took a long time. But, you know, it was a, it was a really interesting company, and they had a niche. They just didn't get out of it fast enough. We talk a lot about that with the high expensive fee mutual fund long-only world that's kind of the closet indexers at some point think all those are going to go the way of the dodo, but we haven't, don't know when that's going to happen. We often talk about, is there going to be a blockbuster Netflix moment with those? Or is it just going to be a generational transfer? I think it's probably the latter, but anyway, off topic. All right. So you got some pretty good operational experience some pretty good practical experience analyzing companies. You just kind of wake up one day and say, you know, I feel grumpy. I didn't have any coffee. I'm going to start looking into some of these crappy companies and betting on them to go down. What was kind of the transition? What was the next phase? Interesting enough, when I was younger, I never woke up grumpy, so that was good. I wake up grumpy every single day. I, I crawl I crawl out of a coffin. My dog licks me in the face, and I crawl to the coffee machine. I always laugh at people talking about their very intentional mornings where they do a lot of meditation, and I just don't have that gene. When my genome gets sequenced, we'll find I have the grumpy morning coffee gene. Okay, so... As you get older, it's going to get worse. I'll just tell you that. So in 83, I went to work for a very wealthy Dallas family, and they had all these investments, but they only had one investment that just was printing money every year, and it was from a a guy that was actually right next door to us, this guy Rusty Rose. And I went over and I met Rusty for the first time, and anyone who's older will know about Rusty, anyone who's younger would not, but Rusty was one of the original 
fraud short sellers, and probably the best of all time. His Stanford Harvard guy unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but Rusty was so good at short selling that they actually gave him the name the mortician. And so if Rusty shorted your stock, it was going to go to zero because he didn't, he didn't mess with anything that wasn't like really a fraud and nothing that you would actually even cover at a buck. So I went over and I met Rusty and I knew nothing about stocks. I knew nothing about Wall Street, even though I'd gone to business school. I took a lot of monetary policy, but I didn't waste any time on the stock market or the, or the like. So he explained short selling to me and I said, wait a minute. My best attribute is to be able to do detailed research and to find things that are, that are having problems. This seems perfect for me. And back then, in particular, I felt like the number of businesses that were founded, that a larger percentage failed than businesses that succeed. And also, isn't it easier to spot something that's going to fail than to be certain on something that's going to succeed? So I said, this is great. I said, if you'll find ideas, I'll do all the research for you. It was just right down my alley where I could make the phone calls, I could do the spreadsheets, I could read all this stuff. I have a really good, uh, probably the best thing about me is common sense. I just have kind of like this fairly simple approach to judgment of good and evil, and I tend to get it right. So it was just kind of the perfect place. And I just started working next to Rusty. I was in the office next to him, but Rusty would come over and say, well, we ought to look at this company. And I would look at it and I'd go start making calls. And I could not believe how many companies out there were 100% frauds. Now, you got to understand, this was a unique time in history. And you cannot reproduce, all your listeners, you cannot reproduce this kind of strategy again. Because this was something that could work in the 80s, in the early 90s. It cannot work today. You'll understand why. Because back then, it was simple to do a fraud. You could do a fraud, and there were, there were so many companies that were either investment banks like D.H. Blair, Stratton Oakmont, which I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of because of the Wolf of Wall Street. We can talk about that. I turned Stratton Oakmont over to the FBI. But there were companies that would float these IPOs, and they, the whole businesses were fraud. But it, that was back in the day. You couldn't even find stock symbols. I mean, literally, someone would give me the name of a company. I couldn't find the stock symbol for two or three days. And it was also, there was nothing online. You couldn't get 10Ks, annual reports, quarterly reports. You couldn't get any of those. So you had to go to a company like Disclosure, and Disclosure would actually print these documents out to you. So the only way you could ever figure anything out about a company is you'd have to get, really get a hard copy, read it, and go through. So it was a very slow process. And there was no oversense of a public guardian. Like, you know, right now, someone tries to commit a financial fraud. The public's everywhere, and they're tweeting about it and the whole deal. Back then, total crickets. And so a guy could launch something. He could run the stock from $2 to $19. Nobody didn't even know about it. And we got very, very good at finding those. And it turned out we would find those things because we would start tracking certain investment banking houses, if you want to call them that, you know. And those houses were not shy. And, you know, the SEC would go in and slap them on the hand and give them a fine. But the SEC was not really refined in that area of going after frauds. And so the SEC had to actually learn the process of how to do it. And we can talk about that in a second. But the number of frauds that we ran across were enormous. And basically, we never got beat. So we could do 100 shorts, and we would win 100 times. 
Now, it's not that we wouldn't suffer some pain in the process, but we never got beat. We were never short. And also, we were not shorting overvalued companies at all. So just to give you an example back then, there was a company that was called Instant Hot Water. And Instant Hot Water, the claims were very, very simple. This doesn't even matter whether these claims are accurate, but just understand the level of the story here. The claims were that everybody knows that hot water molecules stand up cold water molecules sit down. So this guy claimed that he had a instrument or basically an electrical motor that he could put wires into water and he could flip a switch and molecules would stand up. So he called it instant hot water. And that was a public company and that actually traded. Well, obviously that was just a total fraud. There's another company called S. Taylor, which was Snooky Taylor, which was a, a company that claimed that you could go down the black sand beaches and, you know, you see the sparkling on the beaches. Well, that's silica. That's not gold. But they would tell people it was gold and they'd drag these things down along the beach. And at the end of capturing black sand, they would throw it around. They'd open up the bottom and sure enough, gold would come out of the bottom. Well, it's pretty obvious how they did that, right? They stuck gold in the bottom. And so, so the earliest days, the first 200 <laughs> or 250 or 300 or 400 companies we did were all like that. They were just completely made up garbage companies. And it turned out that we got very good at finding them. We got very good at doing the research on them. We actually wrote a book on how to do research on frauds. Now, we didn't publish it. I still have it in my office, but it's like 200-something pages. So an analyst could come in and figure out how you would actually find a fraud, investigate a fraud, and the like. But we, we got so good at it that we would just find a fraud. We'd call the SEC. I had several guys at the SEC in Washington, and I would pass these frauds along to them. I'd give them all the work. And for years, I really couldn't quite figure out what to do with them. But by about 1986, 87, they started really figuring it out. And so you could, you could present them the data. It was always black and white. And within a fairly short period of time, they'd go investigate them. And then it would take a little bit longer to close them down. So this became an incredible business. I think I started with a million. And in four years, I turned it into 15. And I wasn't really pressing it hard. But it's just like, we were just never going to get beat. And so well, like the process was you would put on a short, say, SEC, these guys are clearly a bunch of fraudsters. It, it reminds me of an old phrase my grandmother would use, which is using some uh, elbow grease. So actually doing some like hard work, meaning and kind of value added digging around a little harder today with a disinfectant of the internet. And so what was you would put on a short and most of these, I assume, were terminals, like they would essentially go to zero or go go away. What was then the process? So you did this for a little while. You built up this 15 million capital. And did people start to wake up to this at all? What was kind of the progress? Even in the early days when I really was, I mean, I was pretty happy with that kind of result. I then merged in with Feshback Brothers. Now, Feshback Brothers was still a small firm. It only had about $100 million in capital at the time, but there were three brothers there, and the three brothers were absolutely brilliant, but no formal education at all, zero formal education. They were really, really smart guys, and we started swapping ideas because they knew Rusty Rose, and we just got along really well, and we merged our firms together, and then we raised a little bit of money. I mean, we basically... We wouldn't have to do anything except accept money coming in because our returns were crazy. My return each year was always over 80%. This went for 
gosh, I don't know, nine years or so, something like this. I mean, our returns were were phenomenal. And by the time we got to 1990, we had a couple of billion dollars. And I believe from the data that I've read, and I've never tried to substantiate it, the entire hedge fund industry was about 10 billion. So at one time we were 15 to 25% of the entire hedge fund industry. That's how early we were in the process. So we built up to a couple hundred people, but it's just a completely different time because we had 26 people in the accounting department. We had to write the original software that's now Advent, which is used by almost every hedge fund that does any any form of shorting. We had to write that software. We actually wrote that at Fetchback Brothers, and that became what is now Advent, which virtually everybody uses. We should have kept that company because there was really no way to handle large number of shorts, large number of accounts, and the like. We helped Merrill set up their box, their short selling box, which basically for your listeners, if you short a stock, you have to go borrow it. No one really knew how to do that in mass. We helped Merrill Lynch do that. So we were very instrumental in developing the short selling industry into something, well, developing into industry and then having systems in place so you could do it in large amounts of dollars. We were early about that. But I think what then naturally developed besides the fact that we had a large amount of capital. We also were lucky to run. I mean, we had the crash in 87, which I never vote for a crash, but if there's going to be a crash, you might as well be short. So I would prefer the world not crash. I'd prefer to make it on the long side. So I'm never looking for bad things to happen. I remember we were short, I think it was JetBlue at the time, or no, it was Value Jet, And it was a terrible terrible airline and they had all kind of maintenance issues and they were buying planes that were just for two million dollars and it was nothing but trouble and I remember the company went away but they had to have a plane crash in the Everglades just a sickening feeling to end up making money on people doing poorly but generally we weren't on the value jet side we're more on just terrible terrible businesses I think a lot of people listen to this and we say that's kind of amazing too you know the 80s and 90s rip roaring bull market and to think that in a time when, when U.S. stocks in general were performing so well, that there were still these sort of inefficiencies and frauds out there that you could find opportunities despite the huge headwinds of a up market is pretty, pretty amazing. Are there any other like kind of stories that come to mind, you know, as you guys were doing all this research? Are there any ones that stand out? There's a few that I think are really, really, really interesting. When you start doing frauds of businesses that don't exist, that's one thing. But when you start doing frauds of businesses that exist, some people might claim that Tesla's a fraud. I don't think it's a fraud. But Enron would be an example of a real business. That was a real business that really didn't exist, right? When you start off doing complete scams like instant hot water and even the very famous ZZZ best that we turned over to the SEC, which was Barry Minkow, he went to jail. We could talk about that, you know, the Drexel Burnham. What was that business? It's a great name. Well, ZZZ best was probably the highest profile fraud back in the 80s. It was a Drexel Burnham deal and they basically claimed that they would go into all these buildings and they would do restoration after fires. And what they would actually do is, and they tricked everybody, including Drexel, but they didn't trick us for one minute, was that they would go up to these buildings that were under construction and and rehab and the like, and they would hang up their helmets 
their construction helmets and their T-shirts, and they'd bring in the bankers and people like that, and they'd see all their stuff laying around, and then they would leave, and then they would take all their stuff out. You would think it would be pretty easy to figure out that there weren't that many big fires. I remember when the MGM caught fire a long time ago in Vegas. That was like a major story. So I remember calling the people at the MGM and go, your carpet restoration, how big was that? Thinking, wow, I mean, that's an entire hotel almost. It was like $3 million. And these guys were claiming they had carpet restoration business of 10 and $15 million. It was just it was just insane, you know, and it was easy to track because you'd figure out the towns that they were in. Then you'd call the fire department. The fire department would say there were no fires, but they were fooling Drexel Burnham and they were fooling the public. And so the SEC raided them. They ended up, Justice Department went after Barry Minkow, who's gone to jail, come out of jail, gone to jail, come out of jail. I think he still might be in jail. But real businesses like that became very, very interesting. And then my first biotech, one really biotech, it was a pharma business, was one in my own backyard in Dallas, which was probably the most fun I ever had on any company, which was called Carrington Labs. And Carrington Labs claimed in the 80s that they had a cure for HIV, well, basically a cure for AIDS. None of us even knew what AIDS were, so we, we had to do all this research to even figure out what AIDS was. And then we had to do a lot of work on Carrington Labs, even though they claimed that they were curing AIDS with, with aloe vera. But I remember the funniest story was they had one doctor in Fort Worth, and he was curing all these people. And I remember calling him, and by that time, I knew what the symptoms were of AIDS and saying, look, if you had these kind of symptoms, these symptoms, these symptoms, he would go, well, if you had those symptoms, you definitely have AIDS. And it's like, but I'm curing all these people with AIDS. And so he would ultimately give you names of people that he was curing, and you would go follow these people, and you would find out that they were passing away. So it's a tragic story, but you're trying to figure out maybe this company really has a cure for something that is a public. I mean, the profile of AIDS back in the 80s, it was so high, right? And then, you know, ultimately we would find these people would pass away. We'd go back to him and go, yeah, well, these people pass away. And he would go, yeah, well, I cure them. Then they go back and catch it again. <laughs> and this was, this was the, it was such a joke. But what happened from Carrington Labs is that there were huge, huge money guys. One of the second guys at, at one of Ross Perot's companies, EDS, second or third guy, I think it was actually the third employee. He was promoting all, all this stuff. So, you know, they called the SEC on us and the SEC did nothing because they said they were trying to run a real, a real company. But then there was a huge congressional review and the congressional review was about us at Feshback Brothers. And there's a book out. There's like about a 400 page book about this congressional review of short sellers because all short sellers back then had to be criminal, right? I mean, we were making up these stories about these great companies. And I remember the thing they asked me to come and testify, I would not go because they had like six companies testifying in front of Congress and all six of them were complete frauds. But it didn't matter to Congress. They didn't have the slightest idea. They just had one congressman who wanted to go after short sellers. And so I remember the funniest thing was they said that, that me, Tom Barton, constantly used the name Joe Barton making calls. And Joe Barton is my partner. He's also my brother, right? And so they wanted to say that I used the name Joe Barton, and we had a congressman in Texas, Joe Barton. So they said I was impersonating a congressman. They didn't even know I had a brother named Joe. And so Congress is up there talking about how I'm using this name of Joe Barton, and 
it was really kind of a hilarious thing, but they made a big deal out of it, and they were going to try to go after everybody and, and bring criminal things, and it basically went away. But Carrington was really funny, and there were just, I don't know, how many of these names you want to go through. I remember, here's a very simple one. We were short Home Shopping Network back then, and of course, HSN has survived. But back then, we were very concerned because their inventory numbers were huge. I mean, they would carry 90 days and 120 days and 160 days of inventory. And we figured out their inventory that they were carrying wasn't any good because home shopping doesn't carry inventory, right? They're supposed to bring in inventory, put it on the air. It goes away. If it doesn't go away, they put it on the air one more day. And then it hopefully goes away. Then they discount it. You don't carry inventory for your home shopping network, but they were carrying 160 days. So obviously they were buying a lot of bad stuff and home shopping network almost went away. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure it may have actually filed bankruptcy and come back out. I don't, I don't recall, but this is the level of research, but I'll give you one more story on the short side and the level of research that it took and how we actually use that today. Because this, I think is, it's an interesting story. And I referred to it recently in a Barron's interview that we did, but I only gave a small snippet. But we were short a company, Endolase, and Endolase had a laser that was one of the first medical device lasers. And it was about a million bucks, which means only a few hospitals back in the 80s could even afford a million dollar laser. And their sales were enormous, but their accounts receivable were over a year which you don't have to be a genius to know there's some problem there. So we called the company. We said, hey, your accounts receivable are over a year. What's going on? It happened to be a New York company right up here on Columbus Circle. And the guy there who, the end of the story is he ended up fleeing the country. He said, look, we sell them to the hospitals. It takes them a long time to pay for them. But our cost of capital is so low that let's just sell them. We collect them over a year or two years. It doesn't really matter. It's basically financing. And we said, okay, and hung up, and I didn't believe the story. So I told my analyst, identify every hospital in the United States that can afford a million-dollar laser. There were 200 and something. We called all 200, all of them. We said, hey, you ever bought this laser? Nope, never bought the laser. Nope, never bought the laser, never bought the laser. So call the company back up. Hey, 200 hospitals, nobody bought the laser. Oh, yeah, we sold them to all these hospitals. Come up and you can look at our books. I Okay, so I go up and I have a guy go with me because I think that possibly it's a mob-related deal and they're going to kill me. And a lot of things we shorted were mob-related. And we can talk about that briefly in a second. But went up and looked at the books, and sure enough, their accounts were sealed for all these hospitals that we had called. And he said, see, we sold them all. I made them go back, call all the hospitals, and sure enough, none of them had bought it. So they were just making it up. I think Arthur Anderson was the auditor back then, for people who remember the name Arthur Anderson. But it didn't matter. It could have been Arthur Anderson, Price Waterhouse. It could have been any of those guys. They were all being taken by these kinds of guys. So we had to do a lot of work. And so we basically figured out that they were made by Messerschmitt, the German company. We talked to Messerschmitt. We said, how did the lasers get here? The lasers came by boat. When do they get here? They come here on a Thursday. We ship them so-and-so. We get them. They're paying us for the lasers. We really like Indolase. So then we have to call 
the uh, dock in New Jersey, and we talked to a guy there, and he says, hey, these lasers are coming in. He says, you're lucky because lasers, this laser has its own number. If it's tennis shoes, I cannot tell you what's coming in and where, but this laser, I can tell you exactly when they come in. We get them every Thursday, third Thursday of the month. I said, that's great. So we had a private investigator. He went down, watched the truck pick up these lasers, and they took these lasers, and they're storing them in his grandmother's house in the garage. Well, you can imagine now that we have that answer and that story, what do you think the SEC is going to do? Do you think it's hard to short the stock? Remember, there was no uptick ruled in. You think it's hard to short the stock? Do you think you're worried about shorting the stock? No. So you just call the SEC and go, okay, this is where the lasers are coming in. Go over there to the address, open up the garage. That's where all the lasers are. And that's kind of what happened. And the guy who ran it, Michael Klinger, he skipped the country and he went to Israel and he's had a some other run-ins with the law since then. But this is the kind of work that you've got to do. You just can't look at the top. You can look at the top and go one year of accounts receivable, but that's not the way you're going to have with a certainty of 100% that you got it right. Those are the only kind of shorts I do. So I would not be the guy that you'd want to call on Tesla. Now, I'll give you an opinion on it, but I'm not the guy that you would call on Tesla. I said, meanwhile, that grandma had an amazing garage sale selling lasers to the whole neighborhood. <laughs> Actually, she didn't collect for them either. I think they were just hauled away and returned. So we talked about lasers. It seems like betting against the mob would be kind of a questionable target for your own personal life expectancy. I mean, how many times would these companies push back? Would you ever get any threats? Being a short seller is so hard even today where half of the country thinks short selling is un-American, but how often would the companies react kind of aggressively or angrily or anything else? Anything come to mind? Yeah, yeah. First of all, let me tell you what is un-American. Promoting companies with stories that are false, whether you're long or short. That is un-American. Trying to figure out whether people are telling the truth that's very American, okay? Risking your capital is very American. Very un-American, starting rumors about companies that aren't true to drive it down or drive it up. Very un-American, okay? So I just want to clear that because you can't put all short sellers in the same category because it's not fair. It'd be like putting all people in the same category. There are terrible short sellers out there that just start rumors and then do these hit and runs. And I punch those guys in the nose, okay? I hate those guys. But there are other guys who do really detailed work and they, they help the market. Look, in the old days, these companies that were run by mob contacts, you know, New Jersey, New York, Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City was huge. Newport Beach, some great parts of the country. West Palm, the places you would expect maybe a little bit more mob involvement. When something went bad, they usually beat up each other. They'd usually go get the guy who do the promote and beat him up. And there were cases we heard about that where guys were the big promoter that the guy from the SEC would say to me, yeah, he got beat up and stuff of the like. I never was really that worried about it because to them it's just, or to guys like D.H. Blair, it's just a lot better just to go do the next one. They probably made money on it anyway. Okay, let's go do another one. That's better than just bringing more and more attention to yourself. So it wasn't much of a concern, but it became a little bit more concern in, in, in the early 90s. And I had really good security guy. I started bouncing things off him. He was really good. He was Ross Perot's guy. And as you know about Ross Perot, Ross Perot knew something about security. 
and I would bounce these things off. He'd go, forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it. Then I'd want to go, no, that's a real one. And so after that, I just decided, you know, I'd made enough money doing this. And also, what advantage is there to be public about all this stuff? So I just pretty much went underground. And since 93, I'm almost unheard of. And that's pretty much the reason. And it wasn't really the threat from them. It was just that when you get a certain level of publicity, you get a certain issue that goes with it. Right. So I just decided the publicity was not that good. But really, in the late 80s and the 90s, I couldn't walk anywhere. I could not go to a ski slope without people stopping me. I was that well recognized. And, you know, in New York, I couldn't go anywhere. And I had all these speaking engagements and stuff. But, you know, the great thing is that's before Google. So if you go back and Google me, you don't find that much stuff. So, you know, I went underground in 93. Now, I'll tell you this. It's not really advantageous to business. It's a lot better to business if you have a high profile because everybody's calling you, you're seeing deals. If all of a sudden you go underground, that's not great for business. Well, I, I joked with you earlier that you have probably my favorite website I've seen in the past decade, which it has, I think, it looks kind of like Berkshire. It has like two lines, uh, two lines of uh, all white, all white page with two lines of black type. So I uh, know my favorite. You know, you mentioned earlier a quick reference to Stratton Oakmont. And I think that name will probably ring a bell with a lot of our listeners. Maybe talk to us a little bit about your experience and involvement with that shop. That whole movie, Wolf of Wall Street, I saw it and I laughed the whole time, okay? It's a very entertaining movie. That is not the way the story went at all. I mean, the story story was very, very simple of a firm that was running stocks up, selling the stock they own, and then instantly the stock collapsing. It was a very simple pump and dump. It's very similar to what another 20 firms were doing at the time. And it became very obvious after doing a lot of work, a lot of work, similar to the kind of work I've described before, that these guys just wouldn't file 13D. So they could own 80 or 90% of the stock. It would look like there was a lot out in the float. They could trade it back and forth. And then once you got a stock to a certain level, they actually today call that momentum investing. When it gets to a certain level, then everybody wants to own it. And then they sell and everybody is held holding the bag, right? Stratton Oakmont was nothing more than that. It was just another one that was pumping out crappy deals. We knew about them. We turned it into the SEC, ultimately had discussions with the FBI over it, and they were raided, and that was it. It wasn't any more exciting, sexy than any other story, except somebody decided to do a movie. And if they said, well, this guy didn't file a 13D, which means you own more than 5%, and he owned 90%, and therefore they could control the stock, that ain't much of a movie, right? I saw the movie, I was just in hysterics. Because, you know, I'm not aware any of that stuff happened. Sinking a boat and crashing a car like that, I'm not aware of any of that. You need a little Hollywood to spice it up. There's actually a personal angle to this with me, where I live in Manhattan Beach, California. And back in the day, when I was in my late 20s, had a couple roommates. We were maybe early 30s. Can't even remember at this point. We we were trying to get a new nice apartment and had put in a bid and the landlord accepted and then called us back a day or two later and said, actually, I'm going to rent it out to someone else. We said, what are you talking about? You said you would live. She said, yes, but I'm renting it out to this guy who is going to be, his life is going to be in a movie based on, and he's going to be uh, portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, the Wolf of Wall Street. So I lost an apartment to him. He's been on my doghouse shit list ever since, regardless of, <laughs> of the bucket shop he ran. I'm just mad because we lost the apartment. I'll tell you a really funny story 
to me, it was very funny at the time talking about the mob and stuff. I, I came to New York. The SEC asked me to come to New York and speak to the district attorney of Manhattan, which I was more than happy to do. And I came and I get in a room and he comes in very recognizable. Okay. And there are three or four SEC guys there and they're very interested in this one particular firm. And so I start telling them all about it and they're all real interested. All of a sudden, the attorney gets up and he goes, I got to go. And I go, what do you mean? I go, we're only like 30 minutes into this thing. He goes, he goes, hey, we caught a guy at the post office opening up letters and he stole recently four subway tokens. And that's a felony. <laughs> and, he actually, and he actually left this meeting. Where we were talking about all these mob guys <laughs> rigging these stocks to go get a guy who had stolen four subway tokens. I thought at that time, boy, you better... <laughs> I'm not really sure how you rank these in terms of crime, but it was kind of a crazy thing. It's like I thought, well, I looked, I looked around the room and said, I don't think my story is that important. And we're talking about subway tokens back then, they were probably 25 cents. It was like a dollar, maybe $2, and they had taken off. So that was my mob thing. There was another story that was real funny, too, in a certain sense. It was a company, Coger Equity, Coger Property. I think they were the largest Class B building owners in the country, certainly one of them. And the guy, Ira Koga, was just really well known in Florida. And we got a call that, hey, you need to look at the transfer of these assets because they're transferring assets back and forth. And so what they were doing is, you know, real estate prices were starting to fall in Florida. Surprising. Okay. There's a period that they fall and a period they rise. And what Koga Equity and Koga Property were doing was they were selling properties to each other, but Koger Properties would buy one for $10 million, they'd sell it to Koger Equity for 25 Then Koger Equity would have bought a property for $30 million, they'd sell it back to the property for $50 million. So they were trading properties back and forth, and each time they would make that trade, they'd book a profit, right? And the value of their assets would go up. So we figured it out. We turned it into the regulators. They rated the companies. Companies went to zero. About a year and a half later, I get a call from an attorney in New York. He says, uh, we would like, and it became known that I was the one who turned him over. Okay. It was either in the press or something of the like. So, or they got it from the SEC. I don't know. I'm not certain. So the attorney calls me, says, we represent Ira Koger. We would like to come down and interview you. I said, you do not want to come down and interview me. He goes, oh no, we do. I said, no, you don't. You're going to waste my time. It'd be the biggest mistake of your life. He goes, oh, no, we do. And so I tried to block it about four different times. And finally, it got scheduled. So I was going to have to do a deposition in Dallas over this companies that went to zero. So at that time, the attorney that's going to represent me was an ex-SEC guy, really great guy, really funny guy. Tom Von Stein was a great guy, and super smart. So he says, okay, Barton, he says, you know, you got to be prepared for this. I said, I don't have to be prepared. Let's just meet with them. So they come down to Dallas and it was the most amazing thing because when the door opened, five attorneys came in. They were all in their late fifties, full silver hair, three piece suit. It's a hundred degrees in Dallas, Texas at the time. These guys look like the TV show. First guy comes in, he's more powerful than the second guy comes in, he's more powerful than the third guy comes in. It's, a, it's that kind of deal. And they've got these briefcases that all probably cost $10,000 a piece. And they sit down. I go in in a t-shirt, shorts, and tennis shoes and no socks, okay? And I go in and I sit down at the table and I put my feet up on the table right in front of them, okay? 
and they're very serious. And I'm laughing with Von Stein and they're going to record it. And they've got the cameras there and the stenographer. And incidentally, they had the judge on the line too, because they thought that I might be, become a problem. They were going to use the judge to force me to answer questions about it. Right? So we sit there and they go, okay, we're going to start this thing. Judge, you ready? Yes, I'm ready. And roll the cameras and take the notes. And they start the thing. And the guy says to me, he goes, please state your name. And I go, I'm not giving you my damn name. You don't need my name. You know exactly who I am. But I just want to tell you before we get started. Now, I've been doing this 10 years, so I had a, I had a reputation, okay? I said, I just want to tell you before we get started, your client is the number one white-collar criminal I have ever run up against. At that point, the lead attorney says, uh, hold on just a second, please. And all five of them get out and all five come back in. And they go, Mr. Barton, thank you for your time. That's the end of the interview. <laughs> that was the whole thing. And you know what they were trying to do? They were trying to show that if I could figure it out by looking at public documents, that anyone could figure it out. So therefore, it was not a fraud. You clearly had this niche. You were successful at finding these frauds. At some point, you also started investing on the long side too. I know you were managing money for Soros at some point. Was there a transition? Was it something you just started doing both at the same time? No. At the end of 19, literally 1990, short selling in this form and fashion was over. It's just that so many of these houses that were pushing these frauds were gone Remember the SNL and, and the bank crisis came up. We were short every SNL that walked because we just were. We were short almost all the banks because they had a, 10 times their equity in real estate and real estate was all collapsing. And the short, short business, as I have just described over the last 45 minutes, was over. So D.H. Blair was gone. All these slimy brokerage firms were gone. The SEC was on top of it. And literally, we couldn't find hardly any more of these. There were no more instant hot waters. And, you know, finding a Koger equity, Koger properties, that's a tough gig, okay? It's tough to do the work on that and find those that are that big. It's so much easier to find a company that really doesn't exist. It has a big stock price. So it was over. And in 1990, we had a great year at Fest back in 91. We did not have a good year because all the shorts were going up. And most of the, not most, but a good amount of our money wanted us to stay short. And we just couldn't stay short. And so we actually had liquidations in 91. And we actually told our clients, we said, look, we got to go long because we can't do this anymore. We're just telling you it's over. Momentum investing is now hot. If you're short a company, short squeeze is real important. They were just starting to list stocks. I'm not sure they were listing there, but people knew what the short interest was. At some point, they started publishing short interest. And so really the source of shorts was gone. So Fishbank Brothers had to completely morph, and we were just not going to morph that firm. So my brother Joe and I, we left, and we uh, set up our own kind of family office in 93. However, we didn't change offices because we were always in Dallas, but Feshbeck Brothers was headquarters in Palo Alto. We were always in Dallas, so we didn't have to do anything but change the name on the door. 
I remember walking in and my secretary was there. She was with me for 35 years. And I said, what are we going to do? What are we going to call the firm? And she says, well, you know, how about White Rock Capital? Because we're near White Rock Lake. I go, that's great. And that's how White Rock Capital started. It started in 93. And the first thing we did was we ended up calling a great contact we had at the Soros. And Soros immediately gave us money. And so we were off and running in a completely new business. That happened in 93. We were forced. I would have never, ever left that niche in the market if the niche was going to continue. Never left it. I also would have never left the niche of shorting SNLs because every SNL is going to go to zero. Okay. But, you know, the biggest problem investors have is things change. They have an outlier situation, short selling of fraud. And they're great at it. And then it changes and they don't change. Now to Chanos, you got to give Jim Chanos credit because Chanos has been a short seller all his life. And so Chanos is the go-to guy to write a big check to be short. So Chanos has had a lot of really great years when the market allows it. And then not great years if he's short only if the market doesn't allow it, right? But, you know, to his credit, he's made a lot of money and he stayed there. But I was never interested in shorting overpriced stocks. I don't want to really make a living shorting Tesla. I don't. So, well, it's not that it's just hard, but I'm a black and white guy. If I don't have the answer, I pass. That's a critical thing. Because if somebody says short IBM, I go, I cannot get my arms around IBM. I can't do it. I think that's a good lesson because so many investors, they want to have an opinion on everything. And we're always telling investors, say, look, there's tens of thousands of securities around the world, you don't have to have an opinion on Tesla or Bitcoin or whatever it is. You can just put it in the too hard pile and move on to something that's a lot simpler and clearer. But investors, because of the news flow or just the drama and excitement of a lot of these stories, and obviously Tesla Tesla has it all. It's an exciting story. But we always tell people, it's like, you just pass. You don't have to have an opinion on every single investment. Well, you know, the other thing is you got to figure out where are you going to get your ideas from? Now, we figured out in an early, early stage that the best place to get ideas is from retail brokers, not institutional brokers, not Wall Street research, not TV, not the Wall Street Journal, great sources, not for us. Why a retail broker? Because a retail broker generally has, as his customer, a CEO who runs a real company. So he's actually got the best sources because he's probably, in some cases, you can find a retail broker that has high net worth clients. Those clients are running businesses. And those businesses, by talking to those guys, are the very best sources. So I love when I run across a doctor and a doctor says to me, well, what do you think about so-and-so? And I go, I don't know. You're one of the leading oncologists in the world. What do you think about all these companies they're oncology gene therapy companies, right? And so almost, almost all of the investors that are out there have access to people that are geniuses and leaders in their field. And so we actually had to train in the earliest days retail brokers to say, hey, when you're talking to so-and-so about their business, how about asking them, are there any frauds out there? And that's how we started getting a lot of frauds. And so you don't have to be an expert on everything, but even more so, you have to decide where you're going to get your ideas from and chasing things like Bitcoin or others. These are kind of momentum investors. I don't know a lot of people that are good at it. Some are phenomenal at it. There are some traders that I just am amazed every time. They'll be the guys that own gold from 200 to 1600, or they'll be the guys that own Bitcoin 
because they're really early in the cycle and they buy it right and they sell it right. They're great traders, but I can tell you of your listeners, if you have 100 million listeners, there are going to be 10 of the 100 million that are great traders. The rest of the people have to go based upon detail, based upon business fundamentals, and based upon hopefully being in a market that allows them to win. Some markets will not allow you to win on the upside or downside. They're just periods like that, right? You mentioned how it's gotten harder in the U.S. and the game has shifted a little bit, which, by the way, is I think such a great lesson to investors too, where you had so many funds in this past cycle that knocked the ball out of the park in 08 based on one trade. But after that happened, have tried to kind of replicate that. I think it was hard for a lot of people to say, okay, well, that was the one trade and we now got to move on. It's not going to happen again. But I wonder how much of the short selling, if there's going to be a Tom Barton in China or India or Brazil, where probably a lot of these shenanigans (laughs) are still going on in that kind of value added research still works in some of these far-flung locales. I don't I don't know if you've ever looked beyond our shores at all, or you stick mainly to the U.S.? Now, Canadian, I was short some Canadian companies that traded in the U.S., and I had to, back in the days when I were, the Ontario Security Commission could not even talk to the U.S. SEC. And so <laughs> the SEC would have questions, and they literally could not ask them. And a lot of work that I did basically help them write a treaty that allows them to swap data. They literally couldn't even swap it back in the early days. We were short some things. We'd have to talk to the SEC, Ontario Security Exchange, not to get off the the subject of your question. But no, we pretty much have stuck in the U.S. But really what happened to us was during the process of investigating shorts, we started running across longs. Okay, because remember, a lot of our sources are long guys who really understand it. Now, not with total 100% frauds, but if you're going to start doing Koger Equity, Koger Properties, you're going to start doing even a company like Carrington Labs, which was, it was a real company, it just wasn't real. And if you're going to start doing any, any company, there's some level of fundamentals, you better start talking to the best guy in the field because that guy will really lead you in the right places. He'll have the best contacts. So in the process of investigating some shorts toward the end of the period, end of the period, we ran across some really, really brilliant business owners. And that's how we ended up with one of our first investments, which was USSB, which became DirecTV. It was, USSB is 90% of what DirecTV ultimately was. They had all the programming and the like, but, but we were short a company that claimed that they had a satellite TV. It was actually here in New York. We actually visited the demonstration. And while people were watching the TV coming on a satellite dish, a guy went upstairs and disconnected the wire from the satellite dish and the picture remained, which pretty much told us it wasn't coming from the satellite dish. Okay. But in the process of doing the research on it, we ran across a guy who invented basically the eyewitness news trucks, the uplink trucks. And then we ran across USSB and then as a result of that, we were able to put $50 million in that, which was Soros's money, and that became DirecTV. So we started to figure out, hey, look, we can do these things on the long side, but long is a lot harder than frauds because frauds are X, Y, Z. You got the answer. You know that they're sitting in the garage. Long requires a completely different set of skills, and it requires a completely different set of judgment. And you also have to be willing, if you're going to do well on the long side, Pretty much, at least, well, let me put it to you this way. Sitting in the seat, I said, you have to be able to go to a room where 99 people still believe you're wrong. 
But the other thing about being a short seller, you go into a room, 100 people love it, you hate it, everyone tells you you're wrong, you walk out and you short more because you have all the data. So you have to be able to do that on the long side. In the earliest states, now, if you're trying to buy Apple computer, you don't have to be that kind of guy. But remember, I'm a black and white guy, and I like to have a competitive advantage, and I like to be in something that other people haven't really thought about, or at least all the dollars haven't flown in. So even in USSB, they had tried to raise all this money from guys like ABC, CBS, Disney. I'm just throwing out names, okay? NBC, Universal, all these companies, and they had all looked at the direct TV concept and said it will never work. You'll never be able to have a, a picture that's consistent enough, that's not interrupted by storms and like in every single person passed. And these are people in the industry that are brilliant in their industry. And I looked at it and said, well, there's no way it's not going to work because you've already got the picture. You know how to do this. It's satellite. Bingo. It actually was an easy exercise once we saw everything they had in the backup of the satellites. So it was an easy exercise. So it was even back in that earliest days that I was kind of startled that the experts sometimes would miss it when it's just sitting right in their face, right? Well, it's funny, Tom, because, you know, uh, the skill set to be a short seller, you almost have to have something like kind of askew in your brain. All my good friends that are short sellers, they're brilliant, but you have to be extremely skeptical. And to flip the script to the long, there's not a lot of investors that can kind of do both. Because long, we had a great comment that I loved. I think it was on the, the interview we did with Jason Calcanis, where he said a lot of these ideas for longs, if you look at this cycle in particular, and you look at Uber, he said, well, no one's going to do that because the drivers are obviously going to rape people or Airbnb, you're going to get murdered. But then you flip the script and the phrasing that I love about looking at longs and these big multi-bagger potential said, what if it did work? In which case, all right, what is the potential of this concept and idea, because on the longs, when you're looking for these 10, 100x baggers, unicorns, whatever, that's really where the potential is. And I think a lot of people, it's rare to find someone who can do both, look at the short side and be skeptical and then flip the script to the long side. Over the past cycle, you've also started to get a little bit interested in healthcare. What was kind of the driving force there? Was it chatting with some of these brokers where you said, man, there's a lot of innovation going on in biotech? Was it just deal flow? Was your neighbor a biotech guy. What was the interest that brought you into that sector as well? You said the right thing. It said, was there somebody who got you interested in it? So I'm always a guy trying to find an outlier situation or something that's new, something I can get a competitive advantage on. Unfortunately, in my career, as long as I've been around, I just should have bought Google, Apple, the obvious ones, right? But my interest level is always something different. It's like, okay, yeah, those are going to work, but I'm trying to look for something that's kind of different, more interesting. I don't know why I'm like that, but I am wired like that, okay? So we did this thing with Soros for about 10 years, 1999 to 2003, and we, we managed money for other people during that time as well, pretty much still as a family office, and I always had a little hedge fund that I kept together during that period. And from 2003 to 2010, I'll tell you, not really that interesting for us. I mean, 2001, 2000 was an interesting time, right? Because 2001, everything blew up. But 2003 to 2010 was not the most interesting time. Plus, I have young kids. They, they turned out basically to be all-American golfers, spectacular golfers, one at Oklahoma State, then SMU, and then my daughter went to Stanford. It was an, basically an academic All-American there. And so from 2003 to 2010, I did a lot of kid raising, and I just didn't find anything that was that interesting. I completely missed 
the 2008 mortgage collapse, even though all my friends were doing it. I just didn't understand it. I didn't want to set up these special accounts. Most of these guys were getting run over, and I just missed it. And sometimes you're going to miss something that's obvious. I just went to the Billy Joel concert, and I realized everything he wrote that was great. And hopefully he didn't come back and yell at me for this. But he was about 20 years old. By the time he's 60, he's not writing great stuff anymore. I think had I seen the mortgage crisis and I'd been about 15 years younger, I probably would have been all over it. But I completely missed it. So from 2003 to 2010, I'm raising these kids, taking them around the world, playing golf tournaments. But I'm also still investing in the like. And we had some okay years during there. But it just wasn't an exciting time. It just didn't happen. In 2010, everything changed for me because I ran across a guy who said, you need to start looking at gene therapy DNA because now we understand how DNA works and the science is finally here that we're going to be able to do something with DNA. And I just thought it was just totally totally fascinating. And actually, the guy who introduced me to the most is the guy who runs this crazy company in Trexon. And we should talk about in Trexon, okay? But the guy who runs it, RJ Kirk, he is the most brilliant guy I've ever met. And he knows every industry as if he's the guy who invented the industry. And he knows science as if he is a PhD in whatever he's talking about in science, whether it is gene therapy, molecular biology, it doesn't matter. He is a walking encyclopedia of knowledge. You've never met a guy like this. And he explained it to me. And of course, if you go read Steve Jobs' book, he says in that the next great area is the combination of science and technology, talking about medicine and technology. So now I'm starting to think about it this, okay? When they discovered radio frequency, there was nothing you could do with radio frequency 50, 60 years ago. As a matter of fact, how the DNA they discovered, as I recall, three days before I was born back in the 50s. So I'm not a super young guy, three days before. But even though you could understand DNA, or any, even though you could understand radio frequencies, you didn't have the technology to do anything with it. So it took a long time before the iPhone came up from Morse code, took a long time to understand how to use those frequencies. In 2010, it was clear to me that now science and technology are going to work together. They were going to be able to take DNA, gene therapy, and any other aspect of the human body, and they were going to be able to manipulate it to cure major diseases, but also to do incredible things in non-healthcare. And I started looking at every place I looked, it made total sense. So, for instance, I used to be a national chairman for major gifts for cystic fibrosis. And I did that for, I don't know, a long time. And fortunately, CF raised a lot of money. But everybody knows what causes CF, but they haven't been able to correct it. They've got great treatments for these kids that are afflicted, but they don't have the cure. Well, the cure is to correct the gene. This is what will ultimately happen. And so I started looking at healthcare, which I kind of knew. Then I started looking at all these industries. And so if you go and you just kind of look at Intrexon just at the top level, we're not talking about the stock now. We're just talking about the company, okay? If you look at the company, you got a company that has better DNA knowledge than any company on the planet. But DNA knowledge across 
a hundred different industries. So they'll be the best at fish. They'll be the best at the mosquito. They'll be the best at apples to make sure that apples don't brown. They'll be the best at all these other industries because they're working on them. Where if you go to a Kite or a Juno or any of these other couple of companies I'm a founder of, we'll talk about in a second. If you go to theirs, you have people that are specializing in CAR-T. But the guys that are specializing in CAR-T and they're using gene therapy, you can use that gene therapy or the same DNA knowledge to go impact natural gas and turn it into a solid fuel. So I looked at this and thought, wow, this is going to be the biggest change in our world that we have ever seen. And everything that gets done is going to be disruptive. So I'll just give you a little example. If I come to you and I say, Meb, I got this idea for a product better than Rogaine. And, you know, you grow 25% more hair than Rogaine, and we've done these tests and we can show it, and would you like to put money in it? Well, if you got half a brain, which I know you do, you'd go, I'm not putting any money in that thing. I'm not going up against Rogaine. We'll never get the shelf space. We don't have the ad dollars, blankety blank, okay? Now I come to you and I go, hey, guess what? We've figured out how to cut the gene on and off. And we figured out how to increase and decrease certain proteins. And we figured out how to change hair color by proteins. And we now, in fact, can give you a pill and you will grow all your hair back, all of it. And you will keep it. And if you want it to be its natural color, you take this pill. If you want it never to change gray, you take this pill. Now you go, really? The only question you're asking me is really. No, the question I'm asking you is that sounds like you're describing one of your shorts from the 80s. Well, it does. It does. It's a magic pill. Yeah, it does. Okay. Except that you and I know for a fact that science is going to figure out how to correct all these human issues. You know for a fact. You just don't know when it's going to happen. Everybody always assumes it's going to happen sooner or it's going to happen later. And so they say sooner and they go waste all their money. Leading edge, bleeding edge, they call that. Or they assume it's going to happen later and they won't invest in it. The point is, if you can hit the right timing of it and you can start looking for great investments, you can make a lot of money. So we started to invest in in Trexon and Trexon related deals. And in the process, we decided that there were a couple of indications that we could go after that no one else was really going after and that we could fund and we could turn into real businesses. And so... Myself and two other guys, we had this company called BioLife, which became Avexis. We funded it for $3 million. We went out for, for a couple of million dollars. We got a license from Ohio State. We turned it into a real company. We hired real guys. We did a real financing, but we put in $3 million. And we ended up selling it to Novartis this year for $9 billion. And that is for the treatment of spinal muscular atrophy. Now, we were up against Biogen and Biogen's partner, Ionis, and Biogen can treat SMA, but nowhere to the level we can. We can do it with an IV, ultimately with a pill probably, but we can do it with an IV, and they have to do it with seven lumbar punctures, and they don't get the same results we do. So by using kind of like our contact base and putting together the right team, we were able to go build a company, literally from scratch, with no office, no employees, and in six years, we sold it for $9 billion. We did it again. We did another company called Agilis, and we did the same thing. Now, interesting enough, when we first formed 
of Vexus. We first formed this company. We went to Intrexon and said, can you help us develop a drug for SMA? And they said, yes, and we got a license from them. And then we determined within about six months that maybe there was an easier way to go and a faster way to go. And we were not wed to any particular company. And our CEO, who's a really, he's a real bulldog, found Ohio State, and he found it an interesting way. We can go into it if you want, but he found it, and we licensed that for almost no money. It was a couple of million dollars, or maybe it's two and a half million dollars we paid for it. And then we hired the right team, and we turned it into a real drug, and we treated 15 kids, and these kids are doing phenomenal, and we're going to treat other kids, and Novartis bought it for $9 billion. But we started out by going to Intrexon. We built another company. There were three other people who started it. I put the first dollars in it. Those three people are my personal friends. And they started it pretty much on the same way we started Avexis in that they went to Intrexon and said, do you have any rare orphan disease? Rare orphan disease for your listeners is that, is that there aren't a lot of people who have it. And it's usually pediatric. So I'm not sure what the definition is, but let's say 20,000 or 50,000. Again, I'm not, I forget the definition of people in the U.S. that'll have it. So it's rare. Was there another rare disease we could go after? And Trexon said, you should go after FA. And so we got a license for that. And then we built this company and decided that FA would take us too long. So we found another group in Taiwan and we licensed a little drug for a central nervous system problem for a couple of million dollars again. And they had five years of data on kids. And we took that great data to the FDA and the FDA approved the drug with no clinical trials in the US. And we just sold that company to PTC for, I think their milestones were probably a minimum of 500 million. I think it's closer to a billion two before royalties. But we started that and I think we put a total of 20 something million in that. And so we're constantly beating big pharma. The reason we're beating big pharma is because we were early. See, this is the beauty about being early because now if someone had a gene therapy program that was spectacular, you got to really find it and you got to convince them to let loose of it. Or you've got to convince them that you can build a great business team, which our group can do. Because you're not going to pick off somebody for two and a half million that's going to be worth a billion anymore because people are becoming a lot more sophisticated with the opportunities. But if you sat with Big Pharma three years ago and you started talking about gene therapy, they had no one in the room who could talk about it. No one. You talk with Big Pharma now, everybody in the room is trained in gene therapy. So if you get there early, that really helped. So we've had two that were just gigantic returns. One, the Novartis of Vexus, our cost was 64 cents. They got sold for $218 in cash. And then uh, I think we'll probably make 40 times on Agilis or something of the sort. And we have two more that are going to be equally successful. My problem was that I was way too early in gene therapy. I worked in a gene therapy lab in college and was absolutely atrocious at working in a lab. I'd spill viruses everywhere. <laughs> That's probably why I ended up in the investment space. But I, I can remember like it was yesterday reading Watson's recombinant DNA book in college. I was in a Barnes & Noble, which listeners is a physical bookstore. I know most of you only buy books on Amazon now, but I remember finding that book and reading it cover to cover, standing in an aisle in Barnes Noble for like three hours and becoming fascinating. And 
the thing for a lot of people was that you knew then, even in the late nineties, that a lot of the innovation was going to end up taking 10, 20 years, but you're finally starting to see a lot of the success and it's starting to get pretty exciting. So as you spend your time, like you've been doing shorting and private longs and long investments and VC backed biotech, what's What's kind of as you look to the future, what do you think you spend most of your time in the coming years of the family office? Is it funding a lot of these innovative healthcare ideas? Is it something else? What's on your brain as you look out to the 2020s? Well, okay. Short, short term, and then a little bit further. Short term, that we want to have this company we're invested in, which will be our best thing, Biotherics, I believe, which is the original founder, chief science office of Celgene. And our biotherics has patents on drugs that we believe are significantly better than Celgene's image. And also, we bought recently within biotherics an AML drug, which was just mentioned in Cell Magazine, where they believe that we actually have a cure for AML. And that would be amazing. And we will know as we treat a patient in probably January how accurate that is. But I believe we have a company that actually could totally revolutionized cell gene on their image, which is their, their largest class of drugs, and then also a cure for AML. If that's the case, and this is a $50 billion company, and our investment level is low. So we want to get that to the point where that's, that's a total business and also a clinical success. The other thing is we've been doing a lot of work with another public company, Xiofarm, which is a totally misunderstood cancer company that trades about $3, which I believe has the technology that completely jumps any other pharma company out there. I don't care what anybody says. We can have a thousand people get on the phone and tell me I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. And I think that if you're going to treat cancer, you got to focus on solid tumors and you've got to focus on being able to deliver a drug to a patient on a timely basis at a reasonable cost. And that's what Xiopharm does. Xiopharm has the ability to do a generic delivery of a drug to a patient as opposed to the other current standard, which is to deliver the drug by the use of a virus. So not, not to make it complicated for your listeners, you don't want to use a virus to deliver because it's very customized to the individual. It's a million bucks or $500,000 to do it. It's a long time to develop it. There's a big waiting list and it is very dangerous. On the other hand, if you can do a non-viral application, you can go in your doctor's office and what works for Bill works for Sally and it can be produced at low cost and it isn't nearly as toxic. So I think we've been working a lot with Xiopharm And I think that's going to be, I never recommend to anybody that somebody should buy it, but we own it. And I think Xiopharm is a fabulous opportunity. As far as what we're going to do in the future, I don't have the slightest idea. Like really at this point, I tell people, they go, well, let's see, you did this company and that was that. You did that company and that was that. And and biotech, you've had two huge winners. You're probably going to have a third and a fourth. How are you doing this? And I kind of go, well, I don't know. Maybe it's just judgment, but maybe it's just a lot of luck and maybe it's just being early. And so I hadn't figured out if we're really good or really lucky, but people like to say you can't do four in a row and just be lucky, right? We're going to continue on this, but I would like to find some other indications 
that we can have a revolutionary change in a product that obsoletes the other product. So I want to be the guy, even though I'm not doing it, I want to be the guy that has the Rogaine killer. So a guy takes a pill and grows all his hair back. Okay. I want to do that because there's so many, if you can name it, whether it's fabric or whether it's something you eat or whether it's something you wear or anything, if you look around your environment, every single thing in your environment can be improved with better DNA. So that gives every opportunity. If you can think about it, whether it's a synthetic leather or whether it's a heating fuel or fuel that goes in a car or a cosmetic or a teeth whitener or any of these other things, these are great opportunities. Let me tell you what is not a great opportunity, which I hate relative to the DNA, this whole industry, and that is making humans into robots. And this has been a thing which has scared everybody, and it scares me today. I'm not going to get involved in that aspect of going into embryos and making changes. Now, I'm all for going into and being able to figure out if there are, are genes that this person's going to have that are going to cause major diseases and the like and making those kind of corrections. I am not for going in and deciding that, that they can be 6'2 instead of 6'8, that they can have an IQ of X, that they can have this or that, because I don't particularly like that. But there are literally thousands of industry opportunities, and so I'm going to continue to look for those, and, and I'm going to try to get lucky and do some things on the public side. Look, recently, and I'll tell you what you listeners can look for. Let me go back. We've owned some of these companies for five years before they worked. When they worked, they were crazy, okay? But yes, five years, sometimes of a little agony, and sometimes just... How long is this going to take? And it needs a little bit more money, even if it's just a little bit more money. Some of these things take a long time. But because if your listeners can understand this, there can be a major change that obsoletes something else. And when that happens, if you can see that in the marketplace, even after it's announced, you can still make a fortune doing it, even though you missed the first move. So we finally bought the other day symbol A-M-R-N, Amarin. And I have a friend who's owned it for eight years. And it was because they were going to come out with some results on their drug where they treated about 8,000 patients to find out what it did for heart attacks, just to make it simple, because I know you like to make it simple. And the street thought that it may reduce heart attacks by 10 to 15%. It turned out it was 25%. So the stock was $3. It had a chance to go to a buck fifty if the results were poor. The results were great. It was $3. This is like a week and a half ago. It's $20 today. It may be 18 right now, okay? It was $20 this morning. I owned it one day and it took off the next. After it took off, I bought a much, much larger position because they had not priced in people going, well, I can't buy a stock that goes from three to 10. I'm going, yeah, you can because it's not the same company anymore. That's actually an interesting point. I mean, I remember there was an old school biotech book. I want to say it's called From Alchemy to IPO. And I'd love listeners, if you have any updated studies on this, send them in. But there was a study where you basically bought biotech stocks post-announcement, meaning the news already came in, but there was a behavioral underreaction, meaning it did pop. In this case, it was a huge pop. But even then... The market was underpricing the potential 
good news. I would love to see an updated study if any listeners have one. Well, I'll tell you this. I would not advise people buying these, any company, whether it's biotech or not, where they're talking about something a year or two or three years down the road, because it's too damn hard to do it. And you just got to hope that all of a sudden somebody decides to jam this stock up and you sit there and you miss a great market, right? I mean, I'm at fault for owning Zia Farm instead of owning Juno or Kite, but I don't believe in Juno and Kite. Even though they got bought out for a fortune, I don't think they're going to work. And I don't think they're going to be long-term businesses, but maybe they are going to be long-term businesses. Or maybe these big farmers wanted to buy them because they have a certain level of technology that can morph into another technology. I don't know what they're thinking. I didn't want to buy them. So I own Zia Farm that has been a $4 stock as long as you and I can remember, okay? I mean, this is a four-year sitting on our hands but timing is now. And so if I was smarter, I would just wait until they had an announcement or two and the stock went to eight or nine and then I could buy it. I wouldn't have to think about it. So the great opportunities for your listeners is that when you see these companies have a product transition, it's not the same company as it was the day before. It's not. It was a $3 stock because it deserved to be a $3 stock. But you can just look at it this way. If it was $3 and they didn't know whether you were going to cure cancer and the next day they cured cancer, it ain't going to trade for three anymore. So, you know, what generally happens is you do get this lift and then you get the next opportunity because people can't pay up when it was three, then it's nine. They can't do it. Okay, but then you find out days later that it was it was X, Y, Z and days later, it's up another two times or three times. Look, that happened on a Vexus. A Vexus had great news. We own this thing forever. I mean, five years before we get bought out. But it goes from a three million dollar market cap to a four point five billion dollar market cap. Now, here's the hard part. In one day, it went from a four point five billion to a nine in one day. And so you don't have to be early, but it is nice to buy it right. But you can take the latest data and you can apply it to the price. Look, they screwed up Apple all the time about that. You get all these these clowns on TV going, well, Apple, I don't think this or that. At one time, Apple, by the time you subtract your cash, what was it, three years ago, it was trading for three times earnings. And people were debating whether it was something you should buy or not. Are you kidding? You know, sometimes you just got to look at the latest data and the opportunity is really ahead of you. So I don't know. I hope I just continue to be this lucky. That's the best advice. I love that Uh, to all our listeners. Just get lucky. That's the. I want to add one thing, because if somebody said, what is the most important thing you do? I'll tell you what it is. And that is this. And I learned this a long time ago. It's a very simple lesson was I was shorting stocks and they broke up AT&T. Now, people don't probably know that it was AT&T, then they broke it up into Southeastern Bell, Southwest Bell, Pacific Bell, they broke it up, right? And when they broke up AT&T into the Bell companies, all these long distance discount carriers popped up. They popped up uh, everywhere and they all had big market caps and they all claimed that they were going to be able to sell long distance discount because they were going to buy it in bulk and they were going to sell it out individually and you're going to save all this money. So they were going to put all the bell companies out of business. No one would go to long distance. I know it's crazy that people used to pay for long distance calls, but listeners, we used to have to pay for long distance calls. Okay. So I wanted to short some of these companies because I knew that it wasn't going to work. I could not get the answer 
no one could get the answer. So for us that were around back then, we know that there was one guy who broke up AT&T, and he caught a lot of crap about it, and the guy was Judge Green. And Judge Green solely broke it up and wrote all the opinions on it. So I'm sitting here going, well, how am I going to figure this thing out? And I decide I'm going to call Judge Green. And I don't know, I was probably 30-something at the time, right? I pick up the phone, find out where he is, call. They switch me to, he goes, hi, Judge Green. And I'm like going, hey, I actually got Judge Green on the phone, right? And I talked to Judge Green. I said, explain to me this. Can they do this? Can they do this? No, they can't do that. Well, this guy said they can do that. No, they can't do that. How about this guy? No, they can't do that. The point of the matter is I didn't go to an analyst on Wall Street to get his opinion. I went to the single best guy in the world. Now, if you can find the single best guy in the world, which you can always, and they will talk to you, and they will always talk to you, you can always get the answer. I think that's a great piece of advice because most people are, I don't know if lazy is the right word or scared, but most people will never make that call, right? Because they'll say, I can't tell you how many times we chat with people and I say, well, I emailed him. He never responded. I say, well, pick up the phone. You never know, right? But there's the old Seneca quote, thinking about luck. It's, I think it's like, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Sometimes you got to be willing to call a guy 20 times and eventually they'll put you through just to get rid of you. It's weird. If you don't call 200 hospitals, you'll never find all the lasers in the basement. Well, that's true. Now, I have access to those kind of people because I know how to get to them. I can understand how people who have full daytime jobs don't have access to do it. But what they'll do is they'll sub in other guys as their experts. So I actually like Jim Cramer, but I don't invest in his style. But if Jim Cramer is now my expert, I probably got a problem, right? The investing public will find who they think their expert is, who's easy to get, and then they'll tune in to hopefully, if they want the real ask, expert, they'll just come to your podcast, right? But, you know, otherwise, they're going to go to CNBC, or they're going to go to Maria Bartiromo, or people that are really smart, but they're not experts, right? They're just reporters. And they believe, well, this guy said this or that. Can't do that. You can do it with small amounts of money, but you can't do it with big amounts of money. And I wouldn't do it with any money. And I think that's probably the biggest difference between us and anyone else. We will find the single best and keep working until we find that. And not, not based upon somebody's opinion, but actually, there's always one guy who's the single best. Tom, you've had a pretty amazing career, different cycles, different investments, different styles. We always start to wind down the interviews asking our guests one question, which is, and we may have talked about already, what has been your most memorable investment or trade? It can be anything. It could be good. It could be something you had a terrible outcome. But what's the one that really sticks out in your head as just burned, seared into your memory as the most memorable one in your career? <laughs> well, actually, I was on the streets of Florence, Italy at the time that it happened. We were following this company, which I would prefer not to mention, that, oh, and they've gotten in a lot of trouble as of the last year or so, and their stock is, has collapsed. But we always felt like there was no way that insurance companies were going to continue to reimburse for this. We never thought so because the pill was no better. They were charging like $25,000 a pill. It ultimately turned out to be about $250,000 a year for something that you could take a steroid pack, which is $10. So we kept waiting for the company to have insurance companies drop them because, you know, why would insurance companies reimburse for this? Because it's, 
totally stupid. It was off label. So in just searching the internet, one of my analysts calls me. No, it was my brother, Joe. He called me. He says, you're not going to believe this. Aetna dropped him. I said, Aetna dropped him? He said, yeah, Aetna dropped him. It was an hour left trading in the day. I said, well, if Aetna dropped him, it's on the internet. They go, yeah, they put it on the internet. Aetna did, right? And so we went out and we bought every put we could possibly buy. It was like 70 or $80 at the time. Every single put we could find because this is all we were waiting for. At the end of the day, I think we'd put up maybe all we could buy was like a hundred and something thousand dollars worth. That's all we could do because we had literally 20 minutes to go. This is like six years ago. Okay. The next day market opened up and they said that now news was everywhere that Aetna had dropped them and the stock plummeted and we sold those puts and I think we turned it into 13 million. You know what it was? We were just looking to find out now. Had I been in the U.S., I'd have got off more than a hundred something thousand dollars worth. I'd have figured out how to do it because it was obvious it was going to get crushed. But it was just a public site, and I remember my trader Goldman Goldman calling me and he says, "Barton, he says the SEC is going to be in here. You can't do that." I said, "Let him come in. I read it on the internet." <laughs> you kidding? It's on the internet. It's on their website. So to me, that's the craziest one and the one that I smile about the most today because it was such a pain in the butt. That company, it was such a pain in the butt, and we just kept waiting. We just got it right off the internet, and no one had seen it. It's like waiting Christmas Eve, waiting on that announcement. Tom, this has been a blast. It's been a lot of fun. If people wanted to, and I don't know if you don't really do a lot of public writing or anything else, is there is there a way to people track what you're up to these days, or is that uh, impossible? So far, the best way to track what I'm doing is to listen to your podcast, because I don't really go out and tell stories too much. But I'm going to lift my profile slightly because even though we have plenty of capital, it seems like we always have more ideas than capital. So I'm not out raising capital, but I do talk from time to time to different people. So I thought it would be better at this point to raise my profile just a little bit since I've been underground for so long. And I think it's also going to help me get some new ideas. So they may see me a little bit more. But, you know, generally speaking, we're pretty private. Tom, it's been a blast. Thanks for taking the time today. Sure. Thank you. Take care. Listeners, we'll post show notes, links to a lot of this fun stuff. Maybe we'll convince Tom to publish his old uh, short-selling book. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Well, check out the podcast archives, mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Leave us a review. If you like the show, if you hate it, let us know. And send Jeff some questions, feedback at themebfavorshow.com. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.